We go inward in order to go outward. We have been systematically trained all our lives to sever ourselves from our own wisdom, from our bodies, and from our intuition and discernment. I'm Karen Hibner. I'm a spiritual director and podcast producer. I help women and folks of other oppressed identities heal from internalized oppression and trauma and go public with their wild and wonderful contribution to this world so that we can all heal together. Through spiritual direction, we can realign with our intuition or inner knowing and tap into the self-trust necessary to move confidently through this life. This is how we heal. After we realign with ourselves and the wisdom that is inherently in us, we go public so other folks can experience healing too. In this space, we'll explore all the different topics that come up in moving toward your most authentic self as well as deconstruction and rebuilding beliefs and how we grow in self-trust, self-confidence, and realign with our own inner wisdom so that we can go public and bring that wisdom to the world. Welcome to this wild and wonderful journey with me. I'm thrilled for you to heal and go public. All right. Hey, thanks everybody for being here. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate being with you and getting the chance, the privilege, the opportunity to be in your ears and in your minds today. So today is going to be the first in sort of, I'm calling this quote artist series that I'm doing. So a little bit of background on me and my work is that as an artist, I'm extremely passionate about being in conversation with artists and for myself and also to put those out in public because I really believe that there's something powerful around how creatives work, how they pursue their own processing and not just in the, I'm a process artist, so this may be a big bent of mind, but how we process things and how we create things, how we move through all of these different spaces in our own beings in order to create something to put out into the world and all of the ways. So also being someone that helps people go public and is always learning to be public, how an artist and a creative is able to do the work that it takes interiorly to put something out into the world to be and to stay public and what all of that looks like. So years and years ago, I used to create spaces through an organization I had created called Fodder, where we were having these public conversations with artists that dug into their process and their interior process more than the product on the wall or the product in the book and on the page, you know? So I am bringing these conversations back. We're going to put them in this place, this podcast space. And this is the first conversation that we're having in this way. So I'm thrilled to share it with you. And today I have with me a guest named Barnabas Smith. Barnabas is a poet that I have found through Instagram. We've been connected for years. We've kind of been mutual fans of each other's work. And today is the first day that we're getting to talk and chat in COVID person, so via Zoom. So I'm going to set up Barnabas's bio for us and everything. And then we'll dive into, we'll welcome him into the space and we'll dive into who he is, how he is and the work that he creates. So Barnabas Smith is a poet, illustrator, and designer born and raised in Southern California. He has released four collections of poetry. His most recent collection, Serenade the Fire, documents the early days of the pandemic. He currently resides in Colorado with his two sons. So Barnabas, thank you so much for being here with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, awesome. I appreciate it. So can you set us up? So within that, it says you're a poet, illustrator, and designer. How do you describe yourself as, I mean, do you use the word artist? Like how, when you meet somebody at a coffee shop, at a bar, whatever your life looks like, and they ask, what do you do? What do you tell them? Uh, it really depends on the situation. A lot of times you say, I'm a poet. And they go, oh, have I ever read one of your poems before? And it's a very awkward thing. So they're like, are you depends. on Pinterest? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> have I seen your book in the bookstore? Yes. So it kind of depends contextually uh, on who I'm talking to and what's going on. But oftentimes it's either poet or designer. Designer, if it's a more professional setting and I'm trying to get work, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But poet is usually something I, it's taken me a while to get comfortable introducing myself as that. Wow. Uh, but the last few years, that's what it's been deep by default now is I'm a poet. Yeah. Um, just because it's such an awkward occupation or vocation to have. Mm-hmm. There's lots of stigma, not stigma. I don't even know if it's stigma, but I feel like most people just automatically go to Dr. Seuss. And then, ah, oh, that's funny. Oh. Yeah. And you're just like, well, I don't quite write those kind of things. <laughs> yes. I would have never thought about that, that people's go to is Dr. Seuss. But I can totally see that there's like a weight that comes with like owning in a lot of different ways. But when you're just meeting someone to say that you're a poet, there's so much like, that comes with it. I mean, as yeah. far as like, there can be an intensity, right? Because people really, I mean, depending on who you're with, I, th- I think generally like a lot of people like admire and mis- mysticize like the word poet and like who a poet is. Do you feel like you get that or more I do get the that Dr. Sometimes. Seuss? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's it's either, it's it kind of oscillates between Dr. Seuss and oh, like someone like Langston Hughes or Mary Oliver. And it's just signed in this like, like, well, I'm not quite that. Like, yeah. Yes. Yes. It comes with like all kinds of like different weights and interpretations. Yeah. There's also, I'm interested, this is maybe just a compare notes thing, but I often just like, I feel like part of my primary identity is like artist. And then that manifests in all these different ways, as far as like podcast producer, like, do you feel like that about kind of some of your titles? Like you feel like you are like poet through and through, and it comes out in these like different forms or what's your kind of take on how they interrelate also? Yeah. I think I'm realizing as I get older that my first inclination is just to be poet. You know, and the way I illustrate as I'm getting more into illustration now, I'm realizing that I'm setting up my comic strips or my illustration very much as a poet would, very economically, very trying to grasp the universe in a few panels or a few strokes. Uh, Even in my professional life as a designer, and I spent some time as a copywriter, you know, you're, you're doing an economy of words, you're trying to get as much in a little amount of space, and just putting on that kind of the lens of a poet and in interpreting that and contextualizing it and bringing it in and, and having that kind of flow to it. Um, mm. So yeah, very much everything in my life kind of goes through a poet's lens, which is hard to explain to some people, but it yes. seems like you can understand that. <laughs> Absolutely. And also to the, this, just the, like, which this is just the need, like it within embedded within what you were saying too, but just like all the different hats. Like, I feel like that's how I kind of distinguish also is that like, I feel like I am artist. And that's the lens that I bring to even the conversations that I'm in with friends. Like I'm always looking for creative problem solving or like that third way, or like, how can this be different? But like, there's gotta be another answer, you know, and like, how can we create one or something, but that there's all these different hats that I wear at different times, you know, to pay the bills or to that come out of that same 
skill set almost, but are like very different too and have their own skill sets as well. So like even when I graduated from art school, I worked with a friend that was also an artist, but had become a welder. And we talked all the time about how like any, everybody should just hire artists, like no matter what you want to do, just hire like artists or creatives because like they're going to bring, yeah, just because of what they bring to the table. But a little bit of a reset, can you tell me just about, and we touched it on a little bit, but tell me about some of that resistance to owning the poet title. What does that look like for you? Yeah, for a long time. So I got into poetry very young. I was like 14 or 15 when I started, mostly through just realizing that the music around me, hip hop and punk rock, all the lyrics were poetry. And so I got into it that way and kind of dabbled in it and then saw a couple of videos of a poet named Saul Williams doing some of his slam poetry. And I was just like, that's what I want to do. But then the resistance to owning that came from, well, I'm not quite there yet. Mm. I'm not that level. I don't have books. I don't, don't have publishing deals. I'm not on stage. But slowly the realization came that I had to own that before any of that stuff could even be possible. Mm-hmm. You've got to be a poet before someone hires you as a poet, quote unquote, you know? Mm-hmm. But the resistance has been a lot of, like I even use a pseudonym a lot of, and most of that is to kind of, distance my personal life from my artist life a bit Mm. and i'm starting to realize maybe i don't need to do that as much anymore or trying to reevaluate why i'd set that up to begin with and why there's that hesitancy to even own up to that in my personal life along with just my artist life yeah Uh, so yeah so can you take a road Yes. Can you take us into that a little bit, whatever you're willing to share? What has that differentiation given to you and why and how are you evaluating it now? Yeah. So I have a faith background in Christianity, kind of, I came in it from like an anarchist kind of angle. I I found Jesus when I was 16 and thought he was super punk rock and super cool. And then I realized going to church that that was not necessarily the norm. And that's kind of when the split happened because I'd be writing poetry and processing this this new awesome thing that I found and it wasn't quite matching up with what I was being told at the churches I was going to. And that's kind of when that split happened, especially as I got more into being more vocal about more things like affirming gays and, and the LGBT community and, and about, you know, abortions being a thing that women should be able to do. And just having these thoughts that kind of came out of my spiritual journey, but didn't match up with the church communities I was a part of. Yes. There instantly became a split especially in instances where I'd be asked to do, perform poetry in front of the congregation. And it's like, ah, oh, I feel kind of icky because I know you're just using me for the talent, not necessarily for the message, because if I ever brought that in, it would just, they'd kick me out. And that happened a couple of times yes. where it just, as soon as they found out what the poetry was outside of church, it just became a very, very complicated conversation and situation a lot of times. So that's a lot of where that split came from. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that that I'm I'm kind of making that decision out of fear. Yeah. Really. I'm afraid of what a certain group of people might do or think of me if they knew the whole me. Yeah. So it's been a journey in and of itself and realizing that I need to make, I've come to a place where I need to make decisions out of love and peace and not out of fear. Wow. And so those decisions around my name and my pseudonym have kind of, come full circle in that now Barnabas Smith is who I am and the poetry is who I am. And that's kind of slowly eclipsing my personal life at this point. Mm -hmm. And so there are people that I meet in public professional or not, they know me as Barnabas now. And that's, that's who I am. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm trying to make that less decisions out of fear around that kind of yeah. introduction and owning up to things. Yes. Wow. Thank you for that. And as a spiritual director too, my mind is like, woo, going, 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 <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. That like we, it's such a microcosm for like what we do in all areas of our lives too, as far as our brains are wired to protect us. And so we adapt, right? And what your adaptation at that time was around, you were told that it was not safe to be like, like to be integrated in this poet self and in this religious community in this way. And so there was like a divide, a differentiation created so that you could safely, like you disintegrated so that you could safely be both, but in different times and places, right? Right. And now being on this journey, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of work and a lot of healing since then and all of that. And that something that I see in a lot of my work is that integration is always a symptom of healing. Like there's always the integration is so beautiful and that you're experiencing really a deep integration in this poet self right now. It's incredibly beautiful. And also to mention too, you and I were, I chatted with you briefly before we started recording, but a big fuel for me in creating these dialogues, whether it be through fodder or whatever with artists was that I experienced in the church as well, this value of the product or for what an artist could deliver for some, for a congregation, looking cultural, looking art, like when arts became an important thing in church, in the institutional church, um, which that's a flawed statement anyway, because I mean, we have all of the art and everything from ancient works. (laughs) But in modern American Christianity, when there was this like arts and theology burst, I saw a lot of folks being taken advantage of for their ability to play guitar or, you know, the art that they could create. And there wasn't a lot of value around, I guess I could say it this way, while a lot of the stereotypes around creatives were still really pervasive in the church. Right. So I'm thankful to be in good company as far as experiencing that as well. Yeah. And also heartbroken that you experienced that too, as far as being valued for what you could offer, which is very natural to a capitalist society yeah, and a exactly. business that is within it. <laughs> exactly. I even had like a weird moment recently. I was in Alaska for a family thing. My then wife and I were going through separation and all just the complexity of that. And I was having coffee with somebody and I was kind of, we were kind of walking through that because they had known me for a while. And I had a pastor that I had been in, in, involved with at one point and he came up, oh, so good to see you. Hey, we, that that poem you wrote for Easter, I forgot how many years ago it was. We used that again. It was so awesome. No, no wanting to know how I was doing, no like interest in what's happened to me, but there's still the same poem I wrote that I probably would not even write today. It's still being used in some of these churches. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about that. Yes. It's just kind of awkward that that's what you associate with me, even though that's a past version of a masked version of me. Like, yes. <laughs> and like without your permission and like right. without, yeah, there's so many levels there that are really interesting. And I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you and you can yeah. comment on this if you want to, but something that I've, that really touches on something that I've been having to really look at lately is like how we put these works out into the world and they kind of, once they're out, they kind of take on their own lives. Right. Right. So like in this case, this, this, it doesn't represent you necessarily and who you are and how you are now, but it's taken on its own life and people feel free to kind of use it and everything. 
And to me, I was really processing around. So I worked, especially in the past, I'm having challenges in actually creating in the last few years, but in the past work predominantly in visual work and photography. And I have some pieces down on the walls in our basement and was just really thinking on how putting my work out into the world, experiencing that initial vitality and burst of energy that comes with that, with it initially, and then how it kind of flickers out to me and almost like it takes on this, it, it hits on grief for me because then it kind of dies, but still lives on in its own. It dies to me in some ways, but lives right. on in its own to other people. So I don't even necessarily have a question for you there, but this is just something that I've been yeah. toying with. Do you have like thoughts on what that looks like for creatives or for you personally yeah, to have so work have, that lives on beyond you? <laughs> I put out so many chat books in the beginning just I use, I've, a lot of my jobs in, in professional life have been around print shops uh, as a designer. And so I've just taken advantage of having access to a copier and just making chat books like crazy. Hell yeah. And some of those poems, I have gone out. I've forgotten what they are, but I'll occasionally get someone to go, oh, I remember this poem. And it was great. And I'm like, oh, cool. I, I almost feel like a different person wrote them sometimes, you know, <laughs> and like, and I have a book I'm actually kind of going through and trying to figure out what to do with my current books and redesigning one that came out before the pandemic. And, but the kind of, kind of through the chaos got lost, but I was looking at the first one I, I put out. I'm like, I don't even like know that, that Barnabas that wrote that book mm. and some of those poems I don't, but there are people that that's their connection to my work. Mm -hmm. Those poems mean something to them. They, they got something out of them. They grew out of them or whatever the case may be. And it's just, it's an odd feeling. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. and it's something I'm constantly like processing. And even for myself, like I'll read, I'll read an old poem. I'm like, wow, who wrote this? Like, I don't, I don't know, like not in like a, I'm so great kind of way, but just in like, mm -hmm. wow. <laughs> yes. It's just like, that came from me, but I don't feel like it came from me. And it's speaking to me now, all these years later, yes. it's just a weird, weird life to live. <laughs> yes. And yes. And to like, I feel like I'm experiencing lately, like through my own like deconstruction and reconstruction of spirituality and religion, yeah. like all of that too, the intent behind all of my work has taken on like different, it's completely changed. And so oh, looking yes. back to look at past works and to say like, oh, that even had like a evangelism, like piece to it and like right. that kind of thing. And to just I think somewhere that I've gotten lately is I was talking to a friend that's a Reiki healer the other day, and she was just talking about how everyone has different access points. So if like, and she was talking about spiritually, of course, like mm -hmm. if, if Jesus is someone's access point to healing, that is beautiful and wonderful. Like she just works with everyone's different access points. Right. And so even trying to think of my work lately of, I've always thought of them as vessels for other people to kind of indulge and in, like pour all of their own stuff onto. And hopefully they find some sort of like mini transformation through that experience. Right. And just thinking of them as like, they may be super outdated to me. Like you're saying with these poems, like they may yeah. be like completely outdated to me, but hopefully there's an access point there somewhere for them to experience at least just like an emotional right. response. Right. Yeah. So to dive in a little bit to your, your work personally, can you tell us a little bit about what your process looks like? Like, what does it look like for you to write? What does it look like for you to write a poem? Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it changes. It's one of those things where I have to constantly, you know, sit down and go, okay, what is my process and reevaluate it. But the through line of it has been allowing myself to be aware and observant of things that are going on around me. Um, 
whether it's through social media or books that I'm reading or things that my kid has said and, and allowing myself to kind of give my space, give myself space to just kind of meditate on it, you know, and kind of process, okay, why did that catch my attention? What about that particular thing interested me and allowing myself to explore that a bit. And a lot of times a poem comes out, a lot of times I'll get a line and that line will sit on a piece of paper for a while and then a poem will come. Mm-hmm. But a most the a major part of the process is allowing myself that space to be aware mm-hmm. and explore whatever it might be in whatever context that might come from. Sometimes I might be reading a book on Buddhism. Sometimes I might be reading a I might be reading, not writing, reading a Spider-Man comic. And I'm just like, whoa, that was so cool. And then mm-hmm. it becomes this random poem that no one would ever know came from a Spider-Man comic book. Mm-hmm. Uh it's just one of those things where it's just. Uh, there's a mystery to the way, at least in my life, poetry works. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, kind of just kind of need to a lot of times remind myself of that. Cause you get to the, you get to a poem and you go, wow, that's cool that so-and-so wrote that. And it's like, might be perfect or might not be, but you're just like, that's a lot of times we're not aware of the whole backstory to that poem. Mm-hmm. And it might be two lines, but it took them 10 years to write it. Right. And, you know, giving myself space as a creative and as a poet to do that same thing, to give myself time mm-hmm. with a poem. Uh, sometimes I rush them, you know, if I feel like, oh, I haven't put anything on Instagram in a while and they might start getting worried about me. And then I realize, but they don't really, that's not how people think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the poem comes out super rushed and probably not my best. And I wrote one the other day and I actually took the time to go, nope, not posting that one. Yes. That one, <laughs> just for me today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh. That's beautiful. And I love that you hit on in that too, that like a couple of different things that it's almost a work of an intention. Like there's like, there's work involved. Like people have this idea of like, even this like movie idea of like what it looks like to write. And like, it just like flows through you or like that kind of thing. But I mean, it does in a way, but also I hear this work of intention. Right. I also hear too, something that is really important to me is that like, as like a visual artist that like studio time is studio time, but like whatever happens in the studio is part of the work. Right. So like the music I'm taking in the books that I'm reading, like, especially when I was in school and actually had like a communal studio with folks also that like anything that's happening in the studio is the work. So not being like, oh, the only time that's that like only when I'm shooting or I'm in the dark room is the work. It's reading your Spider-Man comic is part of the work. Like all of these inputs are part of the work for us. I also love the noticing. That's something I really latched onto a few years ago was just that like even with photography and I've heard there are some really famous and powerful poet photographer duos because there are so many similarities between the works. But just noticing light, noticing how light is falling on something and how that practice of taking pictures forces me to be extraordinarily in the moment Mm -hmm. rather than like, you know, dissociating or processing all of the things or, you know, in that space. And I hear that that's present in your practice as well. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, one of my passions since I was a kid was animation, especially stop motion and watching behind the scenes on how some of these movies are made. And just the attention to detail and the amount of work and discipline that goes into it, even though it's it's animation, it has on the face value nothing to do with poetry. Has okay. informed my process a lot because those animators need to notice in their in their reality, like how does hair move when wind blows on it? Yes. What does the light do when it hits a droplet of water? 
And they've got to replicate that somehow. Mm-hmm. But the only reason they're able to replicate it or make this piece of clay look alive is because they're aware of what's going on around them. Mm-hmm. And that's just always been so beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. Still, I will still watch animation by myself without the kids sometimes oh just gosh, in yeah. awe of the work that goes into that yeah. and a lot of that is informed of my process of poetry as well wow that's super cool I love it I also my mind goes straight to also as far as like how severe the editing or fine-tuning yeah. of stop animation has to be and can be also right. and that's something that I think that is really really powerful of poetry because it is words, but it's also like, and this is part of my own, I'm doing a apprenticeship with a poet kind of right now. I'm very flaky on it because it's so intense and it takes so much <laughs> vulnerability to yes. learn to do something new. Right. But even at paying attention to like vowel sounds mm-hmm. or consonants and like the, what's showing up in the actual language of it and not just the, like, there's the level of emotion. There's the level of like the actual words, there's the technique, like all of those things. And that just that reminder to folks that like just as stop animation takes all of that fine tuning that is, and can be even more and more and more, you know, present in right. the act of writing as well. Yes. Yeah, you talk process again, a lot of, you know, I might take a while to process the idea. It might get on paper. It might be on paper for a while or not at all. And once I actually write a poem, there is an editing process to it. It is reading out loud. How does the vowel sounds? How does the rhythm? How does the line break right? And it's a lot of things that when I started writing poetry, I never thought about. I yes. just wanted to write stuff that sounded cool. Yeah. Uh, but as I've gotten older and I've gotten more into the craft of it, that process has become almost important as the inspiration that began the poem to begin with mm-hmm. and just spending time with the vowel set and just the sounds of it. And it, talking to friends who aren't poets, sometimes they get kind of weirded out because I'm like, Oh, this word means this. And it means that. How did you know that? Well, cause I used the, the vowel version of this. And it's just like, yeah. Amazing. The, the unraveling of, of, of nerdum that can come with some arts is yes. Yes. Just as important as the inspiration. Yes. Wow. Do you, this may be a strange question you'll have to tell me, but does that, is that all in the editing? Like, do you get an initial, like purely emotional, inspirational kind of dump out first, and then you start getting into like etymology or word choice and that kind of thing? Or is it kind of this tango of both? For me, uh, it's mostly emotion first and then going back and editing second. Sometimes, you know, I might be clever and be able to get some of that in the first go. Uh, but a lot of times it's finding what what tools I have after the emotion comes out to kind of shape it. My last collection was uh, All American Sonnets, which was a form I'd never written in before wow. and is not as strict as like a Shakespearean sonnet, but still has rules to it. And mm-hmm. getting the emotion out and then having to adhere to these different constructs and rules mm-hmm. really like stretched me a bit and made my other forms of poetry better. Uh, made the way I process life just a tiny bit better in weird ways, mm. having to go back and rethink and edit and reshape. But yeah, mm. my process is the inspiration just almost, I don't want to, I don't know if this is the proper word to use, but word vomiting on a paper for a bit. Yeah. Just all my emotions and ideas and thoughts and yeah. then going back and reshaping it kind of like a, you know, like a sculpture would or something. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for that. Yeah. And that's something too. I think 
I feel like you've given a couple of different pictures of like what your process looks like as well. But something I always remember, especially when talking to poets is in Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, she talks about a poet and her process. And I can never remember the poet's name. So I'm going to have to look it up and put it in the show notes. But she talks about this poet and how she describes writing poetry as like catching the thing, like it flies through the air and you catch yes. it by the tail and pull it in. Yes. And that like, talking about that before. Yes, that's exactly right? kind of what it's like. Yeah. Okay. And so you really resonate with yeah. that picture. Yeah. Because yeah. as you're, as you're, you know, catching ideas and inspiration, you're just kind of letting the word or idea float in your head. It is a lot of either by happenstance or on purpose waiting for the moment to catch it. Yeah. And put it down on the table and figure yes. out what it wants to do and shape it however it needs to be shaped. Yes. And I feel like too, there's such a big amount of like something I loved about, I love about big magic looking back now and that I hated at the time. Cause I was in a very specific stage of life when I read that book the first time, but was this idea that there are these ideas almost like just this, like almost other dimension, maybe of ideas and inspiration that flow around us all the all times which I think at the time just made me feel less special. Like I wanted it to just all come, like I was feeling prideful. It needed to come from me and like, whatever, I don't know, but it's an idea that I love now. And that if we don't catch it, it will move on to someone else to become, you know, to get out into this world. And I love it now because I also can understand that there's different seasons when we are, when those things are accessible to us. So like things that you're able to write about now, you maybe weren't able to exactly. approach yeah. 10 years ago, right? Like right. or even a year ago. So can you give us maybe a little bit of an inlet? This is kind of a pivot into you, like your personal process, but do you find that your creative process is a healing process for you or gives access to transformation and change for you? Yeah, for sure. Early on, as an angsty teen, that's how I processed a lot of what was going on around me with school and life and just everything. It became a tool for me to to kind of sit down and make sense of my world. Yeah. And I've kind of kept that even till now, you know, with, with 2020 and the pandemic and all of that, the sonnets was my way of trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Mm. Along with, I had, you know, with all the world stuff that was going on, my marriage was starting to unravel and trying to process mm. that at the same time. Really the only tool I had was that. Yeah. And it's brought a lot of healing in, mm. in trying to go, okay, you know, I've got this big thing and unraveling and shaping it and moving it and making it something smaller and a little bit more digestible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very, very much a part of my healing. Mm-hmm. Um, all throughout my life, especially recently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I love even specific to your pandemic works too, as far as using the sonnet form, I can see the intentionality in using that form for taking some things that are so massive, so out of control. So right. And then putting right. them into something smaller and digestible and even using kind of, a creating more limitations for yourself as well in order to like kind of very much like synthesize and process that's incredibly beautiful and that's something I always talk about and I know I've mentioned on the podcast a trillion times but the power of limitations also for creative creative work so I would love to hear your take on this but one of my favorite stories is the white stripes and how they like limited so much as far as like even their like band brand colors just being like black white red and then the the simplicity of the instruments and everything and what was able to just like birth and explode out of all of these like extremely strict limitations right 
Can you tell us? I know you're nodding. Yeah. You are ready to go. <laughs> tell me about I'm, limitation I'm and creativity. <laughs> yeah. So like when I got started, it was very much, I wanted, I was part of the spoken word scene and doing open mics and that kind of thing. And it's very much, you're turning almost, it's almost giving like a mini sermon and there's no bounds to it. And you're just pouring out. And if you're good, there's a rhythm and a rhyme to it. And if you're not, no one really seems to care. It just is, if it impacts them, it's, it's good. But then I just got to a spot where I just, I couldn't, there's almost too much that I could do in that area. And there's so much, like, there's no bounds. Yeah. And I was having a really hard time writing. I was having a really time focusing on writing. I couldn't, I couldn't do that anymore. It just kind of got away from me. And it just seemed like, especially with social media, it just exploded with those kind of poets. It seemed like everybody was doing it. I didn't have anything else new to say because, you know, whatever the last Instagram video I saw, they've already said it. Yeah. So I actually very weirdly was on Twitter. Shia LaBeouf posted some random line of, of text. Nice. And I was like, I don't know what this is. He hasn't posted in a while. I'm a huge Shia LaBeouf fan. And I was like, oh, this is, and this, this poem just came out of nowhere and I worked it and I went, went to go post it and Twitter has a character limit. I couldn't fit it in the oh, tweet. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I need to, I, I need, I just felt this weird need to post it. So I edited it down to the tweet length and hit send. And he would post one a day, this random line of text. And I wrote a poem to go along with it every day after that. What? And it just put me in this weird constraint of, I'm going to write a poem every day. It's got to be based off of whatever Shia LaBeouf pulls out of his head. And it's got to fit in a tweet. And it's the first time I've put these limitations on my writing. And it was the the depth of the of the poem I was writing, the um, the work it was doing in me, thinking about just these random things. There was no rhyme or reason. Uh, and it was just like, okay. And it just put me in as a poet in this brand new space of having to reevaluate how I work and how I observe and my new pro and a new process. And it was kind of taking the agency away in a bit of this is not necessarily my poem. Someone else has kickstart. Someone else has given me the inspiration and I'm working with that inspiration and then I'm putting it out into the world and it's not necessarily mine. It's kind of attached to yeah. whatever him, him and his crew were doing at the time. Yeah. And it was, it was liberating and kind of weird at the same time, but it kind of, it turned into this two-year project of only writing tweet length poems off of just random one line sentences. And I did that for about two years and it was, I saw impacts in other parts of my life. I saw impacts in other parts of my work. Wow. It was very liberating and surprisingly so that those very strict constraints would do that. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. I love this project so much and what it delivered to you also and what you were able to access through the work of I love too that you mentioned that like the limitations didn't only serve the purpose of the work, but also really impacted your life. You were yeah. able to see how doing that work every day and having those harsh limitations like within that work impacted your daily life too. So like those are limitations that were project specific. Right. Do you have practices like, so taking your process is like an even broader lens. We asked around mm -hmm. your process, but do you have practices in your daily life that you maintain in order to be able to access your work? It used to be very strict in, in the last few months or so it's become less so. Yeah. But having this, this constant rhythm of, you know, get up, get the kids ready, take them to school, 
But then when I get back, it's having a cup of coffee and either reading a book or watching some random YouTube video with my son and allowing whatever that is to kind of speak to me or find some kind of awareness in it. Mm. And then spending the day just kind of processing that and hoping that I can write a line. And that's kind of my my goal is to write one line of something. And sometimes it's a poem. Sometimes it's just a line. But for me now, that's that's the process. That's the work. And that line might become another poem someday. Maybe that poem, like I say, that I wrote one, it was not my usual. It was very cheesy, but it was very much for me. And it, mm-hmm. but it was still one of those things where something happened to me in the morning. I allowed it to work on me throughout the day. I wrote the poem and then on to the next day. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I love it. And there's something too, like in my spiritual direction training, we, a big phrase in my program was like, do as you can and not as you can't. And we would right. use that around spiritual practices all the time. And that's such a big thing that I have to offer to folks in the spiritual direction space is like what may have been accessible years ago, as far as like a lot of people used to do quiet times, right? A lot of, right. A lot of people <laughs> used to do a lot of scripture reading to start their day or like hours of journaling, which like there's a whole episode on religious OCD and like that kind of thing that people can look at, but being aware of the current season that you're in all of the needs and the asks for attention and energy in your life right now. And how can you continue to maintain a practice in a way that you can access right now, right? right? Rather than beating yourself up yeah. for the ways that you're not doing it and the ways that you used to be able to access. Right. Cause there was um, a season where I was, you know, waking up at five o'clock in the morning, doing the shower, getting the coffee, doing all the things before the kids woke up. And it just, I'm not in that season anymore. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work. The discipline just, it's not that the discipline isn't there. It's just, different life chapter and having to adjust to that. Right. Absolutely. And especially like too, like, I think just so much permission for all of us to explore what that looks like and to wonder and discover, especially being in, is it year four or five now of pandemic? Um, (laughs) We don't even know. Is it year 20? It feels like it. And so just recognizing also the collective trauma that we're all experiencing through mm-hmm. this upheaval of the season and, and especially what's happening in, well, and I, I say, especially, but this is where I am in the world, but what's also going on in this country and everything, but just to be mindful of how much energy we really do have, what we right. can access and what it looks like to create work right now. I love your commitment to one line. One line is accessible and that's beautiful and it can become something so much bigger And like, even if you, that is like attaching a bunch of different lines together, or if that line spurs like something else in a moment where you can access more, um, that there's possibility within all of that. I do want to bridge, make a bridge a little bit to your illustration. So I know that being kind of being in this conversation of healing and like accessing through healing and processing through your work and everything. I know that just from following you and everything that you've been illustrating more and that that's been a big piece of your own processing right now in in some of your personal life as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your illustration practice? Yeah. So I've been drawing as far as long as I can remember. That's one of the things I used to be known for is, you know, I'd be in class and not taking notes. I'd be doodling in the corners and the margins and along with Poetry being a way of processing life when I was a teen, a lot of it was illustrating and drawing and random comics and characters and things like that. But as I got older, it just kind of faded away. I became a graphic designer because I needed my drawings to pay my bills. Yes. And that kind of just, the the <laughs> the artistry and the process and all that just kind of fell to the wayside. But then last year, uh, my wife and I got separated and I just huge identity crisis of mm-hmm. who am I? What's going on? What do I, I it, it was just mind boggling. 
And then I got laid off from my day job around the same time. So it was another wow. like compounded of like identity crisis and poetry just, it was still serving a healing purpose, but it wasn't, I felt like it wasn't capable of handling everything. Yeah. And I felt like I needed to find another creative outlet to kind of dual process a bit. Mm-hmm. And I remembered, and even I had a friend re- reach out to me and she had told me, you know, you used to draw all the time. It used to be something that, you know, you found joy in. Maybe you'll find joy in it again. And so I just found a sketchbook and a pencil and every day just sat down for like five minutes and just doodled. Didn't have a goal. Didn't have any plans for it. Wasn't thinking about a lot of times with my poetry, I think, oh, this will fit into a book. Uh, But with illustrations, I haven't done that as much. And just getting some body movement involved. Yeah, Poetry is not as much in body involvement. (laughs) it's yeah. all cerebral uh but with illustration my my arm and my hand have to move my eye has to work with my hand to draw the thing that's in my head and it it became this kind of almost meditation at times of just spending five minutes headphones on music loud coffee and just going at it and whatever happened in five minutes happened um it became uh, very refreshing and kind of felt like i was reconnecting with the past version of myself wow in a way and connecting with someone that I used to know and someone who used to have uh, a hope and a, and a dream of possibility for their life that wow. I, at the moment, was not having. <laughs> uh, and so it's, and now it's become just a normal part of my practice now. Mm, wow. That's incredible. And how, how beautiful that, like, I mean, you had a suggestion from a friend, but that intuitive processing of, I'm sure you're able to describe it now in more language, but when you're first in it, like knowing that there's some, it's doing something for you, it's connecting you to a part of you. Maybe you knew right away. Maybe you're just that, like you can make, you're in that insightful. (laughs) (laughs) Took me a while to realize that was what was going on. Yeah. But like being, but just seeing how you took care of yourself in that way and that your intuition kind of knew where to lead you with this suggestion Mm -hmm. and plugged you into something that could really provide an access point for healing for you and processing for you is really, really beautiful. Are you able to, so as a fellow parent of a young person, so I have a three-year-old, very young, are these five minutes when your headphones on writing, like drawing, are these early in the morning before your sons get up? Like, is what does that look like? Are you just stealing time wherever you I'm can? just stealing time wherever yes. I can get it. <laughs> I was yes. like, should I, should I pontificate and be on? No, I just, honestly, <laughs> just vulnerability. It's whenever I can get it. Uh, yes. I might realize, oh, they've been in the room for a while. I have not, I'm headphones on <laughs> like, or, yes. oh, they're, they're watching Pokemon. It's the same episode they've watched 20 times, but they're into it. Okay. I'm going to go in my room now and just, and just focus. Yes. So it's a lot of just, again, being aware of when I could steal that time and then kind of yes. taking that and just taking it, not, not feeling guilty about leaving the room, not feeling yes. guilty about ignoring them for five minutes. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. I struggle so much with the, like these concepts of good parenting that I've created it. And really it's just perfectionism. Right. Shout out to white supremacy culture, but like (laughs) I have such a hard time balancing of like, okay, I need this. And this is going to benefit like our whole day to just take even. And that's the thing is even breaking it down into five minute chunks and be like, okay, five minutes is enough right now. If that's what I can access instead of like hours in the dark room or something like that, you know, like whatever I can access right now is enough and she's going to be fine. Like she's going (laughs) to, maybe she'll talk about this in therapy one day, but this is what's got to happen. You know, like, so I love knowing that, that you're also stealing moments wherever you can 
Is there anything else that you would like to share with us today, just about your work, your process, how, what healing through creativity looks like at all? Uh, I think the main thing, and uh, as I'm, it's first thought that's coming after this whole conversation is the thing that's helped me the most is just being consistent. Mm. And it might be five minutes here, five minutes there, but it's five minutes, at least once a day. And just trying to find some way to have that consistency has been super helpful. That's the one thing that stayed constant despite the chaos of my life. It's just having that consistent time to just sit down and reflect or sit down and just be aware and having that five, 10, whatever amount of time. But the the weeks that I'm not consistent are the weeks where everything is just chaos through and through. Yes, um, I get that. Yeah, because I'm <laughs> I'm not where I need to be. <laughs> right. I, I have no peace to give anybody else at that point. Yes. But being consistent intentionally so of getting that five minutes wherever I can has had mm-hmm. huge impacts, not just on my art, but on my, you know, my family life as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you hit on it too, that like, if you don't have that peace with yourself, then you don't have peace to give or whatever. Mm-hmm. And even through like internal family systems language, like that kind of thing, it would be like being able to be with yourself, like yeah. that capital S self and like almost, or even meditative language of like being in that intentional mindful space is what pours out for the rest of the day. That's the thing is like, yes, if I have space to, and this is a balance with a three-year-old at one point, I've explored all kinds of different things. Like, oh, can we work at the same table? And she's like working on paint and I'm working on paint and we've discovered that doesn't work or like <laughs> oil pastel at the same time as acrylics, not going right. to work for me, but trying to explore these things, but being in that space impacts how I show up, which hopefully also impacts what healing my child has to do in the future. Right. As exactly. well. <laughs> <laughs> or co-regulation and yeah. them knowing the tools to regulate themselves because they see mommy taking time also, but I did have one more question for you, and this is kind of a, it could be opening a can of worms, but I feel like it's just important for folks, especially folks that are aspiring to pursue like their creative side or to integrate a little bit more that kind of thing. I view my work as like all of my work that I do as like kind of this ecosystem. So there's art and there's photography, there's painting. There's also podcast production, my own podcast production, production for others, all of these different facets, right? But it's, I've come to learn to call it my ecosystem so that I don't like judge one against the other. Right. Right. What does your ecosystem look like? Cause there's financial aspects to it. Mm -hmm. Right. So like my podcast production pays the bills and I have all of these other pieces that I do as well, that some bring in different levels of money. Some don't, what does your ecosystem look like right now? As far as maybe even time finances, like what is your, what does it look like? Yeah. Um, so I got laid off in December just before Christmas. Wonderful. Uh, But part of the huge, massive tech layoff that happened. So I wasn't alone in that, uh, (laughs) which was nice and not nice, but anyway. Yeah. yeah, Both and. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That drastically changed my ecosystem and kind of changed the way I look at my ecosystem in that I had my art and I had my bill paying work. Yeah. And now they've, because of the last few months of having to just reevaluate my life, they're now becoming one ecosystem. Yeah. And so I've got my poetry that is my main outlet of creativity, main way of connecting with the world, um, slowly getting into illustration, but my design work is now kind of coming more into that. I used to do graphic design for every little thing that would come across my desk. And now I'm learning to limit what kind of work I do 
which is not yeah. something I used to do before. I used to just say yes to everything, mm -hmm. but now I'm realizing I can't do that because mm -hmm. some of that work is just not me. Um, mm -hmm. It's not fulfilling to me. It's not, I'm having to stretch my ways and myself in ways I don't like to do certain mm -hmm. types of work. So I'm learning to say no to the things I need to say no to and say yes to things that fit in alignment with my ecosystem. Yeah. So I love that phrase. And so, and I'm taking design wise, I'm taking more book work and trying to do more book covers and book design. I just have being a poet. I love books and I love the design of books. I've designed all of my books and being able to, to use that skill set in love in a way that pays the bills is, is just so fulfilling Ugh. rather than like, I guess I have to do another business card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's too, like being able to choose and being able to choose what fits for your life, your family, like all of those things, right. That's yeah. power also not just saying yes to like whatever comes across your desk and not having to, yeah. like, I'm just admiring like the power that you've taken on, like within all of that as well. Yeah. Thank you for that. I feel like it's just so powerful for us to get to see like what people's like how people are really making this stuff work and what it looks like so thank you for that yeah barnabas if people want to buy your books be in touch with you have you design any of that how can they get in touch with you uh they can get in touch with me mainly on instagram that's where i spend most of my time barnabas prime is the handle or username or whatever it's called these days I know. <laughs> <laughs> but then my books are, are for sale wherever you can buy a book amazon i prefer bookshop.org helps your local bookstores. Amazing. We'll plug there, but yeah. And for design work again, just find me on Instagram and then my DMS are open. If you're, if that's what the people want to contact me for, but yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Barnabas. Thank you so much for sharing yourself, yeah. your process, your work here. I love it. And thank you for all that you've given today as far as connection with my listeners and everything. So I really appreciate it. Yes. I really appreciate it. It's been such a gift to connect with you. So thank yeah. you. Thank you. Karen Hibner. I'm a spiritual director and podcast producer. I help women and folks of other oppressed identities heal from internalized depression and trauma and go public with their wild and wonderful contribution to this world so that we can all heal together. Ready to work with me? You can join my program Heal right now. The program is made up of an online course of all the tools and schema I use in spiritual direction sessions to empower you to access the most liberation for yourself right now. In addition to that, with the program registration, you get access to weekly group direction calls and an online portal to connect with others on the journey. I also include access to a massive resource list and library with all types of bonus content and everything I've ever read or consumed on my journey of healing. I also offer one-on-one -on -one spiritual direction packages for one-hour sessions every other week for six months. The support for your spiritual journey that you receive from spiritual direction is unprecedented. It's a space where you can be 100% honest and 100% you while you process through what beliefs you were given, what you actually believe right now, and how to get your functional life more in alignment with current beliefs than past beliefs. Oh, it's so good. If you're feeling like it's time to go public through podcast production, we can't wait to take your podcast to the next level and get you producing content consistently for your audience and therefore changing the world. 
Use the links in the show notes to jump on my email list right now and get all the free value I can possibly give in emails and schedule your discovery call with me today so we can wonder together at how you're feeling invited to heal or go public. Be well.